Fair warning, the following contains disturbing sexual imagery and criminality. The names and identifying information of the perpetrator of these crimes and of his victim have been changed to protect all concerned. Everyone listening should proceed with a thoughtful consideration of utmost caution. These are real crimes of real offenders. You are traveling through another dimension that is disallowed by religion and tightly regulated by law. It is not explored by science. It is a dimension of sense and pleasure, of terror and the irrational. Our journey takes us into a wondrous and deeply personal land whose boundaries, if they exist at all, are entirely of our own making. Our next stop, Sex Crime Central. His name, John J. Bonds. The time, too recently for anyone's comfort. His age, 27 years. His occupation, well, in his own mind, he's the most talented journalist of his time. It doesn't bother his self-assessment at all that he's only worked in a tiny hometown weekly paper that doesn't even exist anymore. At present, awaiting sentencing for a spree of disturbing dates with a number of young women, featuring what he thought included the sort of minor incidents you walk away from. But from this moment on, after Johnny's last trip to Sex Crime Central, his constant companion will be the overwhelming sense of his own powerlessness. His route, a brief journey into a preoccupation with image. His destination, the deepest of empty chasms, the only poignant feeling he's capable of. Johnny Bonds liked sex, and he liked women, so he dated a lot of them, which was unfortunate for the women who allowed him to get them alone. His most recent date, although no one would call it a date, involved getting a young woman he met on Facebook to go out. She lived out of town, but he was so very charming that she found herself drawn to him and didn't complain about the two-hour drive it took for her to get to where she could have dinner with him. The date was going so very well, and she couldn't believe this handsome guy was so taken with her, so she thought it would be a lot of fun to take him back to her motel room. There, the couple kissed and touched each other entirely consensually until things took a very dark turn. Johnny began trying to have sex with her. At first, everything seemed okay, but the sex rapidly became increasingly abusive and degrading. First, he placed his hands around her throat. Then, he attempted to force his penis into her mouth. She was able to wriggle away a bit, and so, in the end, he only masturbated, and then only ejaculated onto his victim's face. After the police arrested Johnny, they investigated his past and found another victim who was victimized before the first adjudicated assault. This victim's case had not yet gone forward in the criminal justice system. 
She had, however, already gone through her SART exam, that is, the Sexual Assault Response Team's medical evaluation. She told the examining physician that her bruised knees were the result of her being forced down to the ground because Bonds was forcibly sodomizing her. The victim went on to say that her sore throat and the cuts in her mouth were the results of his having put his fingers down her throat while he assaulted her. His other hand squeezed her throat. She did not lose consciousness, but she had what she said was a difficult time. Difficult, perhaps, because of the strangulation. Oh, but wait, neither of these victims were Bond's first. There were at least three other victims discovered by authorities, and each time there were a number of common elements, including masturbating in front of the victim, who was always someone barely acquainted with him, ejaculating into the face of the victim, and forced oral or anal intercourse. Lastly, there was choking, followed by a lot more choking. For example, sometimes placing his hands around the victim's neck was not enough for Johnny, so he would use a wire hanger that he pushed down the throat of the woman under him, causing her to gag. He did this to one victim who was scared to death that her young son in the next room would wake up and come to see what was happening, so she did her best to get it all over with quickly and silently. Police detectives unearthed a trail of shattered victims prior to the instant offense. All of them had been too humiliated to speak of the experience. They had all been too self-blaming to believe anyone would have sympathy or compassion for them, and they all dreaded to hear the words, well, what did you expect? It's your own fault. Little did each of his victims know that although he was a young man with a seemingly non-existent resume of prior convictions, Johnny was, however, not a tourist, but a longtime resident of Sex Crime Central. Welcome to the debriefing. When I first began evaluating individuals who'd been accused of and convicted of sexual criminality, I was pretty nervous. Most of my nervousness was the result of a lack of training for this activity in grad school, but I had, after all, attended a number of seminars and trainings, both national and international, that seemed to indicate that sex offenders were a particularly heinous group of people. Some of you might share my earlier opinion. Some of you might listen to this recording nervous and afraid as we start talking about sexual criminality. But I want to share with you my own journey and what has come from my evaluating thousands of sex offenders. I've learned a great deal, and I think that you'll find it equally enlightening for yourself. I learned that my fear was the direct result of prejudice and ignorance, a complete lack of understanding. The more I found myself understanding how the individual had become impaired in his ability to intelligently manage his sexuality, the more I was able to become analytical, calm, and collected. I invite you to join me in this journey of discovery as we deconstruct sexual criminality. We do this because we truly care about the victims of sex crimes 
And if we do really care, then we have to begin understanding those who perpetrate such crimes. But some will say, I don't want to understand these guys. They should all be hung out to dry. They should all be killed. They should all be put on an island or something. Well, again, if we don't understand sexual criminality and come to understand how individuals grow up to have the sort of impaired decision-making that leads them to commit such crimes, then we are never going to be able to predict such behavior. And because of that, we will never be able to think about sexual criminality as a social ill that we could actually prevent. Without prediction, there is no prevention, and there is no ability to predict without true understanding. Join me in learning to understand these individuals, knowing full well that understanding and finding explanations for how they came to be who they are is in no way excusing or minimizing their behaviors. Johnny Hanger's case is particularly difficult to look at. After all, it involved young, vulnerable women, sometimes mothers, girls who had started off the evening with a real high expectation of good times, only to find themselves horrified at the way things had turned out. Really, all sexual crimes, though, are difficult to look at until we develop the cool, detached eye of a medical professional who, rather than fainting at the sight of blood, is focused on the intervention. The very pronounced ick factor that most of us experience when we talk about sexual criminality prevents us from ever coming to this kind of saving detachment and true understanding. So, okay, Johnny Hanger, what have we got? Are there any criminogenic variables that would have led us to predict his behavior? Oh, there's a word, criminogenic. That might be new. It comes from two words that you know very well, crime and genesis, the beginnings of the crime. What are the variables that might have led us to predict someone would even be tempted to get into this kind of criminal behavior? Examples of these variables include an early childhood of physical abuse, for example. They will help us to predict someone who might have developed with an impaired capacity to make quality decisions as adults. But Johnny, did he have any of these common criminogenic variables that we'll be looking at routinely in future cases? Well, no, he didn't. He didn't have a troubled childhood. He wasn't physically or sexually abused as a child. He wasn't born with a history of learning disability, and he never did develop a drug problem. He had no real problems whatsoever. He'd never been the victim of bullying in school, for example, and he had a reasonably high degree of intelligence. So how do we explain how anyone might commit such a crime as his with a background such as his? Clearly, for most of us, the answer is he's just evil. Most of us would come to this conclusion that those who perpetrate behavior such as Johnny's are simply evil, and that understanding is the default decision of most of our thinking for the last many years. We believe in, in the concept of evil, that old medieval diagnosis for objectionable behavior, like being a witch or a heretic or a sex offender. But if you like enlightenment thinking, if you actually like and appreciate science and really shouldn't we all, 
then we need to think and look a little more deeply into the behavior at hand. In Johnny's case, we need not look at his early childhood history of trauma because there isn't one, at his learning disabilities because they don't exist. In Johnny's case, we need to look at his genome. What we mean is that Johnny was born this way. And that, of course, is a scary thought. Having said Johnny was born this way doesn't negate our ability to understand him, nor does it negate our ability to eventually predict that someone with his problem would commit a sex crime. But what is his problem if it's not the way he was raised? Well, his problem appears to have been that of a personality disorder. Not something he asked for when he was a baby boy, but something that was the direct consequence of genetics. His particular problem? Narcissistic personality disorder. The disorder is characterized by nine traits, but the observer needs only five of these traits, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. We only need five of these traits, and any more than five indicate that the disorder is not more severe, but that the diagnosis is more certain. Johnny had a number of these traits. He had a grandiose sense of self-importance. For example, he always exaggerated his own achievements and talents in everything from his career to his sexuality. He actually used the phrase when trying to describe a relationship, quote, I met and exceeded her every expectation, end quote. As if the relationship itself was really about performance. It had nothing to do with a personal transaction between two people. Johnny believed he was special, and he said so numerous times in terms of his writing skill and his ability to actually behave in moral ways. For example, he denied to me in our jailhouse interview that he was ever going to have sex again following this crime, not unless he actually married someone. He believed also that he was unique and could only be understood by other special, unique people. And in that sense, like many narcissists, he was rather above the herd, at least in his own mind. And if you didn't understand him, that was really more about you than it was about him. That was about your inadequacies, not his eccentric and unusual behaviors and thoughts. To be comfortable, Johnny required excessive admiration. He thrived on that throughout our interview and was able to make numerous disclosures following any sort of admiring statement or glance from yours truly. Johnny had a sense of entitlement that just wouldn't stop. And by entitlement, I mean an unreasonable expectation of especially favorable treatment or that he would get automatic compliance with his expectations. He just believed deep in himself somehow that it was all due him. He was exploitive interpersonally, and by that we mean that he takes advantage of others to achieve his own ends. That was entirely acceptable to him. He often justified his own thinking on this by saying that it was mutually desired, that although he liked gentle sex and rough sex, his partners tended to only like rough sex. Johnny lacked empathy. He was unwilling to or unable to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. And lastly, 
He showed arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes consistently throughout our interview. Now, we've looked at criminogenic variables like the way someone was raised or how much abuse someone had growing up or even long-term problems like substance abuse. Even short-term drunkenness could disable us in the moment and have us make decisions that are very sexual but also very wrong and very counterproductive to how we want our lives to go. Johnny had none of these impairments going on in his own consciousness. He wasn't impaired for any of the normal, usual reasons that we see most sex offenders having. In his case, it was this genetic condition that we so often confuse with normalcy. He wasn't normal, but most of us aren't trained to recognize personality disorders that, by the way, affect 19% of the population. That means about four out of every five people you meet don't have a personality disorder, and that about one out of every five does. There are 10 common personality disorders that we commonly refer to in psychotherapy. His was narcissistic personality disorder, which affects about 1% of the population. Some people believe it's more common in men than in women. Most women would tend to agree. But in any case, he met the criteria in full to be diagnosed as narcissistic. Many of these traits came up in our interview, and they were cited by me in court upon direct examination. Others were left unaddressed because, frankly, he had so many of these traits. What this means, to me, as an observer of thousands of sex offenders, is that we all need to take our time getting to know the people we're dating. We all need to perform what real estate professionals call our due diligence. The idea of inviting someone over to our apartment, to our home, to sleep with us after having known them only for a couple of hours is an incredibly high-risk behavior. But that's not all. Johnny had another disorder. He was a real, honest-to-God, no-exaggeration-necessary sadist. The diagnostic criteria for sadism are really simple, so let's take another look at the DSM. In Johnny's case, he was sadistic because A, he enjoyed sexual behaviors that involved the infliction of pain or humiliation upon others, and B, this sexual arousal pattern had gone on for more than six months. Pretty simple. Pretty much something anybody could diagnose, right? All we'd have to do is get to know somebody. So there you are. You've just cracked the code on understanding your first case. Now, when I was in court, competing defense witnesses testified that they didn't see any evidence of narcissism whatsoever. They didn't see any sadism either, which I found remarkable. There was nothing to see here, folks. Nope. No siree. Just a perfectly normal man enjoying robust mental health and a healthy sexual appetite with willing and consensual partners. After all, who wouldn't like to have a hanger forced down their throat for someone else's sexual gratification? Well, no one, that's who. Normal guys lose their erections right along with their sexual interest when their partner begins sobbing uncontrollably. We're not talking about the mutually consensual spanking of a billionaire's pink cellulite bottom by a porn star. 
we're talking about the deliberate infliction of pain and suffering as a sexual lifestyle. Johnny Hanger was born a narcissist. His sadism was a learned behavior, however. He learned it over time, and it dovetailed perfectly with his narcissism. Not all narcissists become sadists, but all sadists are narcissists. The development of his own sadism was a learned arousal pattern that facilitated his certainty that he was, as he had always known, the smartest guy in the room. The judge gave Johnny the max. Not to teach him a lesson. No, Johnny wasn't capable of learning that kind of a lesson. The judge gave Johnny the max to make sure that he wouldn't hurt anyone else for the longest time possible. So what's the takeaway here? How could Johnny have prevented the sort of behavior that led to his being arrested and going to prison for such a long time? Well, I hate to sound discouraging here, but quite honestly, narcissists, at least at his end of the pool, have no interest whatsoever in getting help. Because after all, why would they want to be like the rest of society when they consider the rest of society really really dumb? Why would they ever want to be like the herd when they consider the herd fitting victims for their own predation? So there really wasn't anything that Johnny was ever going to do to prevent his acting out in this way. Not all narcissists learn to become sadists, but there's no controlling for that either. So At the end of the day, is there anything we as a community could do to help predict and then prevent these kinds of sex crimes? Yes, there is. We could start noticing, becoming more intentional, more deliberate in our dating experiences, treating each date as an opportunity to continue an extended intentional interview of the people we're trying to get close to. Because a lot of the people we're trying to get close to really aren't capable of the kind of closeness we're talking about. They're capable of faking it for a short time, but they're not capable of keeping up the fake over the long haul. Johnny Hanger, age 27, driven to be the greatest, the most talented, and the most recognized of his generation for accomplishments that he never actually achieved. He never made his goal, and instead, his career fantasies took an off-road detour through Sex Crime Central. You're listening to Sex Crime Central with psychotherapist Stephen Ng. This has been an Ng Intellectual production with editing by Steve Cooper and original score by Octophonics. Follow Stephen on Twitter at StephenIngMFT or visit StephenIng.com for more information. Don't forget to subscribe to Sex Crime Central and leave us a review with your thoughts on each episode. We'd love to hear from you.